What a promise to praise the Lord for. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Old Testament promises that. Joshua 1, 9, where God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then Jesus promised the same thing, Matthew 28. And he says there in verse 20, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So it's good to praise the Lord. Speaking of praising the Lord, may I in advance this morning wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. And to use a football analogy, we are in the final two minutes. We're going to take two minutes, and I want you to take the opportunity to out loud, don't scream, but hopefully folks can hear you, and I want you in three words or less to share with the church and before the Lord something you are thankful for. Who will be first? The clock is ticking. Just speak it out. All right, good. Yes. All right, Hebron Church, my husband. All right, grandchildren, Brady and Gracie. Someone else? For this life. Good. The blessed Lord. Amen. What's that? For your health. What is it all on this side? What's that? Where you were pointing. You're thankful for that group. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. School and your family. Brother, you're one of the few thankful for school. Amen. Good for you. Amen. That's great. School and your family. Those are two of the best. All right. Yes. Amen. A wonderful sister in the presence of the Lord every day. Oh, yep. To love and be loved. Thankful for love. Amen. Yes. For our religious freedom in our country. Amen. All right. Our pastors. Well, thank you. Amen. <laughs> I did not pay him to say that. So, <laughs> Thank you. Two more. Yes. All right. You're, you're, you know, I can barely see you in the dark there, guys, so just holler it out. Okay. Bill? God's love in your life. In your wife. God's love in your wife. Okay. Amen. Yes, one more. New grandson. Awesome. All right. Was there one more person you were just going to do it? My faith and what? Okay. Good. Good. Thank you, folks. And uh, thank the Lord for our blessings. It's good during this time to be thankful. In our prayer meeting earlier, folks were noting they'd met a lot of angry people over the last week. And one way to overcome anger is to just stop and think, what am I really thankful for? And I hope you'll take this week of Thanksgiving to say thank you. Years ago when I was in Bible college, the founder of our university, Dr. Bob Jones Sr., had a bunch of chapel sayings. And one that always stayed with me was this. He said, when the fire of gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. And so we want to stay grateful. One other thing I'd like to say before I begin the sermon is uh, about 17 years ago, 
I moved from preaching out of the King James Version, which I love and admire, to the New International Version Bible. Uh, I felt that as I studied Greek helps, I'm not a Greek student, but as I studied the Greek helps, I found that what I often took a long time to understand out of the King James was very evident in the NIV. Plus, I like the flow of the NIV. But uh, Doug, as our senior pastor, has felt led to preach out of the English Standard Version. And I think we should be uniform in our fellowship as far as the preaching and teaching. So now we are giving away all our gift Bibles will be the ESV, English Standard Version. Next week we'll be replacing all the pew Bibles uh, up uh, in the sanctuary with English Standard Versions. And so from now on I'll be preaching out of the English Standard Version. This is my last Sunday, at least here at Hebron, preaching the NIV. And I'm very thankful for this copy of God's Word and those who translated it. It's certainly been a blessing to me. And so I just wanted to note that. I know many of you use the NIV and it's a great, great translation of God's Word. All right, let's get to God's Word this morning, and we have a lengthy text today, but I want us to read out of the book of Acts, chapter 16, and beginning in verse, uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined, excuse me, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the, their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came, came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. 
And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Our title is No Respecter of Persons. And the Word of God teaches us that God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to a particular ethnicity or nationality or status in this life. The Bible teaches us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me this morning in our message walk through just some brief observations from this passage and then I want to share a particular highlight with three simple points to it. But first of all, some observations. The first observation is this, that in putting together what would become the church at Philippi, you've read in your Bible the letter to the Philippians, and it was written to these people who were the beginning of the church, the first believers in Philippi, and then obviously others would be added to them. But it's interesting to note here that God is no respecter of persons. You see, the Bible tells us the first convert is Lydia. She is actually from another community, Thyatira. She's come to Philippi to make money. The Bible says she's a seller of purple. We understand historically that in those ancient times that there were certain shellfish from which they would squeeze a drop of this dye that would make clothing purple. So it was an expensive business to be in, and it created a great profit. So we're probably talking about a rich businesswoman who becomes one of the first converts and members of the Philippian church. The second person we meet is a slave girl, completely at the opposite end of the status, if you will. Along with that, the Bible tells us she's demon-possessed. And so here is a girl involved in fortune-telling and the occult. She is a slave, apparently probably a young girl, and so perhaps a teenager. You have absolutely two opposite ends of the pole, a professional, rich businesswoman, a slave girl. And then we meet a jailer and his family. Here is a sturdy, middle-class, blue-collar worker. He works in the jail day and night, keeping the prisoners for the community to keep them safe and so on. And you have these folks coming together to form the church. How appropriate to scriptural teaching. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. The Bible teaches us that in Christ... And therefore, in the church of Christ, there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. James teaches the same thing in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. He says in verse 1, he said, As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not to show favoritism. We find in verse 9, he says, If you show favoritism, you sin. In other words, prejudice against someone else because of their status in life is a sin. And he uses the illustration there not of race but of riches. He says if a rich man walks into church, you can tell by his clothing, perhaps his ring, his watch, his shoes, the car he drives in, wow, this person is rich. They're well-to-do. Welcome, brother. Sit on the front row. 
On the other hand, somebody comes in poverty-stricken in shabby clothing. We say, hey, sit in the back. He said, if you do that in the church of Jesus Christ, you are sinning. Everyone is to be equally welcomed and equally appreciated in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting to me. We hear a lot of talk in our world today about equality. And it's kind of a fascinating study in God's Word to look at equality. For example, in creation there's equality. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 22 and verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them both. Same thing regarding sin as being sinners. The Bible says that is none, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 10 and verse uh, uh, 10. and I'm sorry, Romans 3 and verse 10. And then you come over to the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. The Bible says the scripture has locked up everyone under sin. Also salvation. Acts chapter 10 verses 34 and 35. When Peter, a Jew, meets Cornelius, a Gentile, he says, I believe God is no respecter of persons, King James Version, shows no partiality, ESV, shows no favoritism, NIV. In other words, God does not choose because you're a Jew to save you or a Gentile. No. He says he has those out of every nation. He accepts who fear him and do what is right. And so the Lord in salvation is no respecter of persons. It is true as well when it comes to the matter of death. You see, Job said in Job 3 and verse 19, as he did a, a, a little eulogy on death itself in Job chapter 3, he says the great and the small are there. In other words, everybody dies. We're all equal there. And then finally, in Revelation 20 and verse 12, at the great white throne judgment, the one who sits on there has such an awesomeness about, awesomeness about him that the heaven and the earth flee away from his presence. And the Bible says before him stand the dead, great and small. And the books are opened. And so all the way through the scriptures, you find equality. And now out of the Old Testament, it's Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. God shows no partiality. And when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, we are all to be equal. So there's no respecter of persons. What an interesting group. A blue-collar worker, a slave girl, a rich professional, all equal in Christ in the church at Philippi. The second observation that I see this morning is the simple fact that the Bible tells us that they went to a place of prayer. And you see, in many of the cities, Paul and the other apostles who ministered with him or missionaries, they were Jewish, and so they would tend to find a synagogue where they could go and pray. But some of these cities that were not Jewish uh, did not have a synagogue. And so they went down to the river to find a place to pray. And my simple observation is this. Do you have a place where you pray? Now, we can all pray on the go. We can lie in our bed and pray. We can pray while we're driving the car. I wouldn't suggest closing your eyes and folding your hands. But you see, we can all pray. But do you have a place where you feel the liberty and the peace and the desire to go there and to spend time in prayer? They were looking for a place of prayer. I've often teasingly said the most beautiful room and the least used room in our whole church facility is up at our prayer room. And 
You may not go to the prayer room, but do you have a place in your home or somewhere where you go and just get alone with the Lord, talk with him, and share with him a place of prayer? Another observation that I see is that immediately when Lydia and her household believed, verse 15, they were baptized. And immediately when the jailer and his household believed, they were baptized. So baptism is important. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, he said, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that great Pentecostal sermon. He said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he said, every one of you repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. Now let me make it clear this morning, I don't believe the Bible teaches that you are baptized and that becomes your salvation. But I do believe this, if you are saved, you ought to be baptized. If you're a family of those who are saved and you have a little one and you want Want them to be baptized, looking forward to their salvation. Some of you has been baptized as little ones. Some of you were baptized after your conversion. I would just say to you this morning, biblically, if you have not been baptized, you just need to get baptized. You need to contact the church and say, listen, I want to follow the Bible. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is a command of Christ. It is a biblical practice. And one person said, well, you know, I'll tell you what, they came to my dad when he was preaching one time on this, and they said, well, brother, I'm praying about getting baptized. He said, man, that's like praying about kissing your wife. You're wasting time. Just do it. And the point is this, brothers and sisters, you don't need to pray about whether God wants you to be baptized or not. If you've not been baptized, you need to just take care of it according to God's word. And the church will be glad to help you follow the Lord in that way. A fourth observation that I see here is in verse 18 where Paul gets a little bit annoyed. Yes, even the apostle. But the Bible says this, after many days, this young girl who was still at that point a demoniac, she's coming on. She's saying the right thing, but she's saying it in an abusive way. Because here are Paul and Silas and the others, they're trying to minister and tell people how to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. She keeps following along, shouting to them and shouting at them and shouting around them, these guys are telling you how to be saved. Now, can you imagine I'm trying to preach to you this morning and somebody is in back on the back back row and keep shouting whatever I'm shouting. Now I'll guarantee you I can outshout them. But you could see how annoying and difficult that would be and hindering to get the message across. Now, I love the fact the Bible says after many days. And so Paul was tolerant. He tried to be understanding. He tried to be sensitive. But finally there comes a point where he says enough. And I thought, you know, there's such a great insight there because sometimes we think as believers we need to just be a complete doormat. And just say, well, I'll just keep putting up with it and keep putting up with it and keep putting up with it and keep putting up with it. No, I think we put up with it for a while. But when we know it's wrong, at some point we say, hey, in the name of Jesus, that's enough. And Paul did. The girl was liberated. And I have every reason to believe she came to Christ through that. There's another observation here. It's what I call the killer bees. Now, I know that nobody here is a Steelers fan. They're my second best team. If you want to know my first team, see me later. But uh, <clears throat> my second best team. And the other day there, there was a, a commentator talking about, he said, boy, those killer bees on the Steelers offense. There's Big Ben and there's Le'Veon Bell running the ball and there's Antonio Brown catching the ball and, and some of these other bees on the team, Bryant, Bruner and so on. And, oh, man. 
Well, you know, as I study this passage, I know there's some killer bees here. One, there's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, there's baptism for those who turn to Christ. And number three, I noticed the beyond here. Did you notice that? As soon as Lydia and her household believed and were baptized, you know the first thing they did? They went beyond and said to Paul and his companions, come stay in our home. We want to be hospitable and generous to you. And then a little bit later, the jailer and his family, after they are ministered to, what's the first thing they do? They take Paul and Silas, who've been beaten in a false arrest, and they wash their wounds, and then they set a meal before them. They again show hospitality and generosity. Isn't it interesting? It's not something they had to graduate to spiritually to become beyond mindsetted people. No, right away. Believers, baptized believers, they go beyond to minister to others. What a great lesson for us. And then my final observation this morning is this. I love the gospel here where the jailer trembling comes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, it says he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do it. Because in the days of Roman law, if you were responsible for someone in jail and they escaped, you suffered the penalty that they were going to suffer. Apparently, Paul and Silas had been condemned to death. Because when he thinks they've escaped because of the earthquake, he draws out a sword to commit suicide. And Paul says, don't do it! We're all here! And he comes in, having already heard about this message of being saved, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now let's think about that for just a moment, believe. You see, believe biblically is not just information. Oh, I believe that. It is impact. I believe, I trust, I depend, I'm committed to that. That's how I believe it. Kind of like the fellow that walked across a tight wire over a waterfall and everybody cheered and said, well, that's awesome. He said, do you people believe I can push a wheelbarrow across that tightrope and bring it back? And they said, oh, man, we believe it. And, oh, he pushed it across and he brought it back, the tight wire over that waterfall. He said, that's amazing. Amazing. He said, how many of you believe I can put somebody in the wheelbarrow and push them across? He said, oh, we believe it. He said, come get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> Nobody believed. See, belief biblically is when you get in the wheelbarrow. When you say, I believe Jesus Christ can and will save my soul. Number two, believe in the Lord Jesus you see, the Bible tells us in chapter in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel by which you are saved, Christ died for your sins according to the scripture. Christ rose again after being buried according to the scriptures. That is what you must absolutely, ultimately believe. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, it says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, so you believe that he died and rose again, and you confess him as Lord, you will be saved. And that's a great word, saved. It's a word that sometimes now in our churches, we don't like to use it. It's kind of old-fashioned. 
And yet, if you study the Word of God, it's just full about being saved. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3, 17, God sent His Son not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus said Himself, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew 1, 21, the angel said to Joseph when baby Jesus was born, he said, you shall call His name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. What do you need to be saved from? Our sins. Why? Because our sins will keep us from God's heaven and send us to hell. I don't know if anybody appreciates the ministry of David Jeremiah on the TV, but I'll tell you what, I appreciated the other night for as popular as Brother Jeremiah is with people and as polished as he is and the beautiful church that he has and all the books he's written and as well known as his ministry is, I'm listening to him on the TV just a couple of weeks ago and he's got the guts to stand up in that pulpit, televised nationally, perhaps internationally, and preach that there is a hell and that people are going to it if they don't get saved. And I admired him for that. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He died for your sins. He rose again. You put your faith, your trust, your dependence, your belief in Him. I love in our bulletin, Sunday by Sunday, if you ever notice it at the end of the little greeting, it says this, we believe in grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, by grace alone, that means that salvation to you and I is completely undeserved. It's God's gift, not something we deserve. Number two, by faith alone means we do not earn it. We do not work for it. We simply accept it. We trust in it by faith. And number three, in Christ alone. That simply says there's nobody else and there's no way else to be saved except believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be saved by Him not only means salvation, from judgment but salvation to a blessed life in Christ here and eternal life in heaven to come so I just want to ask you this morning have you been saved if you're not sure about that come see one of the leaders of the fellowship here and say talk with me from the Bible about what it means to be saved or go online I read an old gospel tract again in preparation for this sermon put it Google in what must I do to be saved by evangelist John R. Rice and read that. What must I do to be saved? Now, with those observations in place, allow me to make this point out of our text today. Often people come to me and they say, you know, I'm trying to serve the Lord, and yet I'm still going through struggles, or I'm having suffering in my life. I don't get it. I mean, if you serve the Lord and are trying to do right, shouldn't God bless you with health and wealth and prosperity? No, at least not according to the biblical pattern. First of all, I want to say to you that the righteous include, being righteous includes suffering, or the righteous are not excluded from suffering. Notice our point here. When our, her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. They brought them before the magistrates. And uh, these guys are beaten, they're stripped, they're put in jail. In other words, here are men who have the signature of Jesus indelibly imprinted on their lives. They are serving the Lord. They're preaching the gospel. They're casting out demons. They're getting people baptized. They're forming a church. They're doing all this righteous stuff. 
with the signature of Jesus on their life, and yet they get falsely accused, falsely arrested, they are treated with derision, they are beaten, and they are put in jail, and apparently condemned to death. Yes, suffering includes the righteous. Look at the followers of Jesus who were even friends of Paul in the New Testament. You have in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 where the Bible says that Paul tells Timothy, I want you to take some wine for your stomach's troubles and your many illnesses. Timothy had the signature of Christ on him, but he still struggled in his health. The Bible tells us that Paul in 2 Timothy leaves Trophimus sick. Now Paul healed a lot of people, but he wasn't able to heal Trophimus. And Trophimus remained at Miletus sick, the Bible says. Here is one who's a servant of Christ, an associate of Paul, but he has issues with health, even though he has the signature of Jesus on his life. The Bible also tells us about those in Jerusalem who were the poor of the Lord's people. They had financial issues, even though they were the Lord's people. And I could go on and on with these illustrations. Did you know that sometimes God's people who have the signature of Jesus on their life don't always get along and have relationship challenges? Yes, Paul wrote to the Philippian church later on. And he had to say in Philippians 4 and verse 2, I beg Syntyche and Yodia, oh, that you would be of the same mind in the Lord. Because conflict had come up. Paul himself and Barnabas, two men who had the signature of Jesus on their lives, they end up splitting up and going into different ministries because there was something they disagreed about. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you, serving the Lord does not guarantee, having the signature of Jesus on your life does not guarantee you are going to be absent from the struggles of this life. Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble. I'm listening to another preacher the other night on the TV and he's sitting there saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And he said, I'll tell you, because of Jesus, I'll never have sickness. And I want to jump right in that TV and say, brother, I love you in the Lord, but you are purely deluded. In this world, you will have struggles, brothers and sisters. So please understand that. Suffering includes the righteous. Secondly, suffering does not cancel out being spiritual. Notice what it says here. About midnight, these beaten, arrested, put in the inner prison, feet in stocks, Paul and Silas, what are they doing? Trying to call their lawyer, right? No, what are they doing? They are praying and singing hymns to God. Their suffering did not cancel out their spirituality. So often I run into dear folks from our own fellowship, and I say, where you been? And they say, oh, well, I tell you, I've been in church because I've been having such a tough time. Then that's the time you need to be in church. Good night. If you're sick, get to the hospital. Go see the doctor. Get some medicine. If you're having a struggle, get in church. Be under the preaching of God's word. Sing the praises of God. Be with God's people. And guess what you'll find out? Others of God's people are hurting too. So you come together. Look at the Psalms, how often David starts out in struggle and suffering only to end the psalm praising the Lord. I love 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2 where it speaks of the Macedonian churches, those Christians in the Macedonian area, those believers in the Lord, those ones with the signature of Jesus on their life. You know what the Bible says about them? It says, in the midst of severe trial, 
their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Their extreme poverty, their severe trial did not counsel out their overflowing joy. Sometimes I'd like to get complaining Christians and haul them down to Haiti. Because we've been in Haiti where there's been a devastating earthquake, where the corruption in the government is outstanding and unbelievable, where there are so few human services compared to what we have, and where the people generally are poverty-stricken. And yet you awaken in the morning to hear them gathered in churches over there at 5 a.m. singing the praises of God. You meet them, and in the midst of all of their struggle and heartache and suffering, how are you doing? Praising the Lord. They're not being deluded. They're not being foolish. They've just come to understand that the things of this life are temporary and at best a struggle. But all the relationship with the Lord is a blessing and it is for eternity. And so in their suffering, they are still spiritual. You know, that's one thing I really appreciate is when someone, I go into a hospital and I talk with somebody and they have a love for the Lord that comes forth even in the midst of their struggle. Or I meet with someone who's burying a loved one and even in the midst of their tears and their grief, there is a peace in the Lord. You see, suffering does not cancel out being spiritual. And number three, I see in this text here that as Paul and Silas were spiritual in the midst of their suffering, it led to ministry. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in. He said, what must I do to be saved? Earlier, it says, as they're singing and praying, the other prisoners heard them. So they're a great witness. And you know, that's an interesting thing about suffering. Is sometimes it can lead to ministry. It certainly happened here. The jailer and his family were saved. Not only that, I see throughout the scriptures that sometimes in the midst of struggle, people were a blessing. Let's be honest about it. When you go through a struggle or suffering, you're going to meet people you wouldn't have otherwise met. You're going to have opportunities you wouldn't otherwise have. That's one thing I personally appreciate about addiction support groups is when we go to them, sometimes our story is a help to somebody else in their journey. And you see, we can be a blessing and a witness even in the midst of our struggle, just as Paul and Silas were. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that when God comforts us in our trial, we are able to turn around and comfort others in their trials. Here are men with the signature of Jesus on their life, as they're serving the Lord, they end up suffering, but they continue to be spiritual, and they are able to minister even in the midst of suffering. You say, Tim, what about suffering? That's our own fault. In other words, we brought the consequences on ourselves. Well, we can understand then, if we have any sense about why we suffer in those things. But I found a verse that really encouraged me even in that. It's in Romans where it says, God can work all things together for good. And he can even take our bad and turn it to good. That's how great God is. You know, I try to, in sermons, always point to the Lord Jesus. And I would just say this. When you think about suffering, from the biblical perspective, you can't help but think about Jesus. 
The Bible calls him in the great prophecy about him in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was a man of suffering. And let me read this passage as I conclude. 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. First of all, Jesus, completely innocent, he committed no sin. And yet in this life and in his death, he suffered. Number two, he never sinned with his mouth, even in his suffering. He never complained. He never griped. He never muttered. He never moaned in a complaining sense, even in his suffering. And number three, he suffered, not for anything he had done, but he suffered for you and I. A great moment of the gospel in your life and in mine is when we come to get it, perhaps for the first time or for a return time. When we get it, he died, he suffered, he bled for me. A little song we used to sing years ago that kind of sums up what he did for me and thanksgiving is this. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free let's all conclude by saying thank you thank you